podcast from Embrace the Middle East, which uh, looks at this vast, complex and often troubled region through the eyes of someone who knows it really well. And I'm absolutely delighted today that that someone is Dr. Rowan Williams, who many of you will know as the former Archbishop of Canterbury and President of Magdalen College, Cambridge. So first of all, Rowan, um, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Great delight for me. Thank you. And Rowan, I I wondered if we could just begin with you just saying a little bit about why the Middle East is of interest to you or has been of interest to you uh, over the years. One of the things we regularly forget, I think, as Westerners and as Christian Westerners, is that Christianity is an Oriental religion in its origins. It's an Eastern Mediterranean phenomenon, which, like Judaism and Islam, has spread across the world. And to look at where this faith has its origins, to look at the melting pot of the first few Christian centuries in the Middle East, in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's always been, for me, a matter of great scholarly interest. I've I've focused a bit on that in academic research over the years, but also to see how that legacy plays out today in religious and social and political terms. I think we, we learn a great deal about the nature, the priorities of the Christian identity itself. I think really back to my teenage days when I was beginning to read some old travel books about the Middle East written by um, Christian travellers, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, and thinking, well, maybe one day I can go and see this for myself. And eventually I was able to. Is there any one of those travellers who particularly kind of excited your imagination before you were able to taste these things for yourself? Two things. One when I was quite a small boy, there was a series on television called Journey of a Lifetime. It was a young couple from Britain traveling around the Holy Land in the 1950s. And I remember catching a bit of that on television. I must have been about seven or eight, I suppose, and being very excited and very inspired by that, by the sight of the sheer physical presence of the lands of of the Bible. But later on, when I was a student, I remember reading that extraordinary 19th century book by Robert Curzon called Visits to Monasteries in the Levant. Curzon was a 19th century aristocrat who travelled round Greece and Syria and the Holy Land and Egypt, visiting monasteries and, uh, frankly, looting manuscript. And he has the most wonderfully uncritical 19th century aristocratic English attitude to all these strange foreigners and their strange ways. It's deliberately quite a, a funny book. He has lots of anecdotes, but it's also funny in ways he wouldn't appreciate in giving us such a vivid sense of how a 19th century Englishman approached this strange world and all the the patronising ignorance that he brings to it, frankly. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, uh, that whole uh, Edward Said uh, thesis about Orientalism. I mean, there are so many, there are so many places and people to whom we could point, including, let's be honest, ourselves. I I remember a conversation I had with a quite highly placed person in the British government who'd better be nameless. I was talking about the the effect of the Iraq war on Christians in Iraq. And this highly placed person in the British government said, well, yes, I understand that. But uh, of course, it's very difficult when all these foreigners come in and convert people to Christianity. And I said, we're talking about Christian communities that have been there since approximately the first Christian century. And this was clearly news to them. We were sent a blog today by uh, uh, one of our partners uh, who's from Jerusalem. 
And like so many uh, Middle East Christians, he began the blog by by recalling how pretty much every time he meets uh, a Christian who's come from the West to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, he gets asked the question, when did you convert? Mm-hmm. How How is it, do you think, that we in the West forgot that Christianity began where he lives, not where we live? Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's got something to do with the politics of the Middle Ages and the early modern period, where you might say the the other world begins somewhere around the Bosphorus. Over there are these others. They are um, Arabs, Syrians, Saracens in the Middle Ages, they're Ottoman Turks in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And there's been some very interesting research on how that Eastern Mediterranean world is seen by European writers in the early modern period as a kind of mm, a distant mirror of the Western world. It's it's other, it's strange, it's not us. And to be asked to understand the diversity and the complexity of that world, it, it's quite a quite a big ask, as they say. And we we tend to draw those lines precisely along the Orientalist lines that you you mentioned from Medwin Said. Um, over there, they're different. So the idea that there are Christians who are different from us, who do things differently, think differently, dress and act differently, that's that's a bit hard to take on. Um, so that's got something to do with it. And also, people have so long been, I suppose, acclimatized to the idea that the development of Christianity is all westwards. There's a kind of um, natural almost magnetic draw, the Christian faith shifts towards a centre in Rome um, or Constantinople or both. Yeah, that's it's very interesting, isn't it? Because in fact, the, 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 tr- the direction of travel of Christianity, as I understand it, in, the, in, those, in this, let's say, this two or three centuries after the death of Jesus, was actually, if anything, predominantly eastwards. That's right. You you have this tremendous expansion into the, the Syriac-speaking world, which in those days would have included what's now Iraq, quite a bit of Iran as well. You have Syrian and Syriac-speaking traders taking Christian faith along the silk routes towards China, but also um, on the shipping routes to South India, uh, where you also, of course, have a Jewish community of huge antiquity. And that that other world of Christian expansion, I think, is mostly unknown to Westerners and was unknown, of course, for a great deal of Christian history. We have stories of Franciscan missionaries turning up at the court of the Tatar Khans in Central Asia, all ready to convert them and finding a lot of somewhat stony faced Christian priests flanking the Khan, waiting <laughs> to meet them, saying, so you're out to convert us to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that 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 question of conversion is a is a is a difficult one, isn't it? Because mm. it lies at the root of some of the suspicion that can exist between. I'm thinking particularly of the Abrahamic faiths, but um, but others as well. To what extent was conversion? And I'm thinking of Christians trying to convert others rather than the other way around. Uh, to what extent was conversion a, a, a major theme or not? for uh, Oriental Christians um, in the early earlier period of the, of the church's history? I think it's a very mixed picture. You have certainly the um, 
the whole pattern that you see right through the urban world of the Mediterranean in the first couple of centuries, which is essentially small groups attracting families, individuals, small local communities. The gradual, steady build-up, in, particularly in the cities, of increasingly numerous Christian communities, not the result of a great conversion campaign, um, certainly nothing like a crusade, God forbid, but the steady accumulation of Christian community. And you see that by the fourth century, um, spreading a bit into the countryside where it's a rather slower process, certainly a slower process in Western Europe as well. And then, of course, you see in the fourth century the beginnings of a state sponsorship of Christianity, which makes the life of members of other faith communities, especially Jews, that much harder. There are real um, draconian disabilities imposed on Jewish citizens of the Roman Empire from the fourth century onwards. And then you have the whole process reversed with um, the rise of Islam, where Christians find themselves in the position of the disadvantaged minority under pressure to convert because they, they along with their Jewish neighbors, suffer disabilities at the hands of the Muslim conquerors. So in that phase, it's impossible for Christians really to conduct what we might regard as a, a mission. And something we don't always understand, we think, or some Western Christians have thought of Middle Eastern Christians, say in um, what's now Iraq or Iran or in Syria, or even in Egypt as inward looking, conservative, not very intellectually creative groups. Um, we can be very patronizing about that. We easily forget that for centuries, all that was possible for them was, was faithfulness. All they could do was, was hold on, transmit the faith and pray. Talking about conversion in that setting is, is almost unimaginable. Meanwhile, of course, in Central Asia and in China, you have people who are more explicitly devoted in the period from, let's say, the 7th to the 10th century, devoted to spreading the faith, to presenting Christian faith in a way that's accessible to local communities. You have the extraordinary phenomenon of Syrian and Syriac-speaking missionaries in China seeking to re-express, re reshape, in terms of native language and culture, the essence of Christian theology and the, the famous um, literary remains from that early Chinese Christian phase are still of huge fascination to scholars because there you see an attempt really to rethink how the Christian faith looks through language that that is not conditioned by Greek and Hebrew. It's It's a big experiment and a very bold one. So a lot going on. A lot going on in this period. And yes, there, there are attempts at conversion in the sense that Syrian monks take the faith to Central Asia and China in the hope of attracting people to it. But it's a very, it's a very vulnerable project and it's not something which is enforced by any political backing at that point. No. I'm, I'm loath to leave the, the early church because it's so fascinating and, and, uh, and, and we know that you are an expert in it. And I, but but we probably have to, and we, I'm going to come to the more contemporary period in a moment because obviously for many people that's that's the the part of uh, the, the this story that they're going to be most familiar with. But before getting there, I just wondered, um, could I just 
uh, tease you with with this with the question of what your take is on on the Ottoman period because I, I find it quite interesting because in in some respects the Ottoman period seems to be a time where um, pluralism a pluralism was allowed to flourish I mean not it, it wasn't always easy but it 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 that pluralism was there I mean in some mm. contrast to the present day but that uh, there's a different take which is that actually the Ottomans were pretty cruel well where do you where do you find yourself in, in on in that polarity locally there were examples of real repression barbarity and cruelty there certainly were but overall the Ottoman polity the Ottoman system was an attempt to recognize that religious plurality was was given you know it was it was there on the ground and the Ottoman Empire never attempted to iron out um, religious diversity like other Islamic states it um, carried on with various kinds of legal disadvantage for non-Muslims but at the same time recognized that they had their own their own community regulations and laws religious leaders were given the right to um, administer those laws and the pressure to convert to Islam was not through persecution but through the steady erosion, I think, of social pressure into marriage and so forth. So in fact, on the surface, the Ottoman Empire is, is more tolerant than many Western European states of the same era in the 17th century. And there are Western critics of um, Western governments of the day who do not fail to make the point. We think, they say, of the Ottomans as, you know, infidel barbarians as a matter of fact they're really rather better at handling religious pluralism than we are at the same yeah. time you have usually in response to um, revolts and uprisings of various kinds in bits of the empire you have extremely brutal repression you have the age of the, the so-called neo-martyrs in greece in the 18th century lots of people who are um, martyred often very very brutally for involvement in protest about Turkish rule, or sometimes because there's some sort of local outburst of zealotry trying to persuade people to convert to Christianity, some refuse and they're killed for their refusal. So locally, it's not a pretty picture. Before we come to the sort of the, the modern period, perhaps just a word about the whole idea of martyrdom mm -hmm. and, the, and the role that it has played in, in the Christian self-understanding uh, but particularly with reference to the Middle East I mean would you like just to say a word about that it's something that that is talked about a lot in yes. the Middle East by Middle East Christians what what how important has it been in in the, the development of the Middle East and Christian identity if there is such a thing it's pretty central I think because from the very earliest earliest days there is a, a sort of living testimony a living tradition of people who have suffered for the faith. And one of the earliest historical documents we have about the church is from Eusebius writing in what's then Palestine in the fourth century, um, his record of the martyrs of Palestine. And this is a chronicle of the people who'd suffered torture and death under the last of the great official Roman imperial persecutions at the beginning of the fourth century. When Christians are a minority, whether in Muslim states, or of course, for a while in the, the old Persian Empire before it became Muslim when it was still Zoroastrian. Um, then, of course, again, as in the Roman Empire, exchanging the stories of martyrdom um, 
the martyrdom of Christian lay people who'd suddenly found themselves at the wrong end of a, a dispute, the martyrdom of monks or missionaries. Sharing those stories becomes part of what cements the community, the identity of the church. We have these stories in common. These stories remind us that for all the disadvantages and the risks, it is worth being faithful because that that faithfulness itself becomes a kind of generator of new life and, and hope. So sharing the stories of martyrdom, it's a way of saying this faith, this commitment is worth dying for. And so it's worth living in. It's worth dying for, so it's worth living in, which is, I think, one thing that martyrdom always says. And over centuries of disadvantage, suffering, and often dramatic martyrdom, um, that becomes an immensely important dimension of Christian identity. And of course, we, we've seen it yet again in the last 20, 30 years. We've seen it with the, the killing of the Cistercian monks in Algeria. We've seen it in the martyrdom of those Coptic Christians in Libya. And there's a very strong sense in the Eastern Mediterranean churches that, yes, well, that almost we know how to do this. We know how to be a martyr church. We know how to how to stand our ground when the pressure comes. And that's one of the things which makes us who we are and makes us aware of the worthwhileness of the commitments we hold. And I, I suppose it may also mean that Middle East Christians living in, in the circumstances in which they do, the various circumstances across the, the region that they do today, when they look at us and all the benefits of uh, life in the West, um, the relative security and safety, for example, um, they must wonder really whether it's we that's lost something, that's failed to experience something important about what it means to be a Christian and uh, add to the frustration of being forgotten and rather looked down upon. That's right. There's certainly a sense in many Middle Eastern Christian communities I know that we in the West on the whole have no idea of why the faith really matters because it hasn't had to be tested, tested to destruction as you might say in, in that way. Um, so we, and it's something which uh, I've said a word on from time to time, we talk about Christians being persecuted in the West sometimes because there are uh, you know, some disadvantages to being a Christian in a secular society. I think Christians in the Middle East would say, actually, that, that's a shame, but you've no idea what persecution really means. This is discomfort, but you're not actually being shot. You're not actually being um, expelled from your home, threatened with torture, sent into exile, and so on. Christians in the Middle East are, generally speaking, very proud of their faith, very proud uh, that this is a fundamental part of their identity, as well as and alongside their citizenship of whichever country it is that they happen to be part of. And yet their numbers are declining, not just because of persecution and in the I think for the most part, not because of persecution, but rather because of a lack of economic opportunity, various pressures that are really squeezing these communities 
Um, and I wonder if you'd just like to say a word about that with 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 particular reference to any any uh, community that that you you know you'd like to bring to our attention. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I first went to Egypt in I think 1979, and at that time it was it wasn't an easy moment for the Coptic Church in Egypt, but there there haven't been many easy moments, but easier than it has subsequently been, I think. Um, there was still a certain assumption that the Coptic community included both some of the poorest in Egyptian society, but also some of the most active and well-educated. There was a, a regular stream of Coptic engineers and doctors going into public life in Egypt. But already, I think you could see the sky darkening a bit. Um, some pressures from Muslim Brotherhood-related uh, groups to keep Copts at arm's length from public life. And I think since that time, we've seen those pressures increasing with the general um, intensification of division between Christian and Muslim communities in the region. Um, I think the Coptic Church at the moment is, I don't know what the latest numerical figures are, but it's always I think been a rather larger percentage of the population than official statistics have, have allowed, but it is it is suffering exactly the pressures you describe. Uh, when, yes, it's harder to feel secure professionally or personally in a society where a great deal is is combining to push you to the margins or outside. Then again, if you look at Syria, or at Iraq, you can see different sorts of pressures very much connected with the geopolitical scene, where, um, as we learned again and again in Iraq, the, it, it's easy for a certain kind of Islamist zealot to present Christians as automatically the enemy within the gates. And even if that doesn't take over the whole society, it, it turns up the temperature in social relations a bit. It makes it harder to revert to the, the old kinds of living together. And that's one thing I, I've heard, as I'm sure you have again and again, traveling in the Middle East over the last 15, 20 years. The old, as we used to call it, Levantine culture, in which Christian and Muslim communities, and Jewish too, could, broadly speaking, live together with a degree of acceptance, where even, especially in rural areas, you'd have Christians and Muslims sharing each other's festivals and each other's fasts. That's more and more a thing of the past. Um, they, the ditch has been dug much deeper. The geopolitical um, mythology of the West and the rest has had a particularly bad effect for Christians in the region. And I think we are we are looking at a a very tough future for many of these historic communities, very tough indeed. As you say, we already see numbers declining very fast in some areas. Uh, when you when you when you talk about the enemy at the gate or being perceived as such, are you referring to the easy identification of Christians in the Middle East with the West, the so-called yes. Christian West? And yes. that this is very much to the detriment of of the uh, Christians in the Middle East. That's right. Uh, when early in the days of the Second Iraq War, people 
some people in the United States talked about crusades. Um, many of us, I think, felt that is exactly what Christians in the Middle East do not need. It's being cast yet again as, you know, by, almost by definition, internal strangers, internal aliens in Islamic societies, people who who are committed to another political agenda, who are not reliable citizens, and all the rest of it. It's to be, yes, tarred with a particular brush of Western loyalty at a time when the uh, the conflicts between East and West, between the Muslim world and the so-called Western democratic world, when these are intensified. So certainly it is one of the, the biggest costs of that era in recent global politics that these Christian communities in the region have suffered that kind of opprobrium, that kind of uh, stereotyping by their Muslim neighbours, with a lot of help, of course, from international Islamist media with an agenda, with an axe to grind on this. On the ground, I think you will still find, and I think you'll still find it in parts of Syria, in parts of Jordan, still find it in parts of Egypt. On the ground, you may see cooperation still at work. You may see some of those default settings of a common national identity rather than religious identity still just about surviving. But it's not looking sunny for that. We'll come back to the, the Middle East in a second, but I wonder if we could very quickly detour to our own situation. I mean, to what extent do you think faith dialogue, uh, faith encounter, uh, faith sharing in, in, our, in our own environment, in our own cultures, is a positive contribution towards a more returning or recovering some of that that neighbourliness that that mm. you you've spoken of and which to some extent has become eroded well to a significant extent has become eroded by recent events in the middle east is there a connection it's absolutely crucial to build trust you build trust by face-to-face -face connection that's the bottom line um the tragedy is that it's taken the the violent divisions of the last 20 years or so to to persuade us again, as it were, of, of the importance of real face-to-face -face encounter. In my time as Archbishop, I, as you'll remember, I, I would every year chair the Building Bridges seminars around the world, which, are, which would be a gathering of Christian and Muslim leaders and scholars, not to discuss um, points of difference or tension between the faiths, so much as to look at issues that we knew we had to face together. Um, we would talk about issues to do with justice and poverty and society. We'd talk about death and eternal life. We'd talk about the nature of prayer. And the important thing about these meetings, for me certainly, was the sense that we were learning to look through each other's eyes a little bit. Almost, dare I say, to look at God through each other's eyes a little bit. And the phrase I've often used from that is, we learn to look at the other person's face as it is when turned towards God, not just when turned towards us. And all of that, it seems to me, is an absolutely necessary counterpart to the um, the easy judgments, the, the binary judgments, the oppositions that we take for granted, the sort of facile versions of the West and the rest that so much of our media pushes us towards. So it is a crucial part of how we respond. It's not going to solve all the problems. It's not a magic wand or a, a silver bullet. And yet, 
and I really want to say in capital letters and yet, without that, I don't see how we're going to to move forward with any kind of shared hope. I've sometimes put it in terms of the need for Christians and Jews and Muslims especially to learn that they will they will have a fuller common future when they better understand their common past and getting together to to exchange reflections on that common past, looking together at the challenges which which affect all of us and which we can't just particularize to anyone. That has to be part of a hopeful strategy. Yeah, I'm struck. Um, there's a, a strong echo of those remarks in a recent document which was published um, by a number of theologians in uh, mainly in Lebanon. Uh, and the document was called We Choose Abundant Life. And it's really a, a, an invitation to Christians, both in the Middle East and elsewhere, including ourselves, to consider um, our vocation, if you like, our calling to be uh, people who r remain hopeful and, and, and find hope in everything, regardless of how unpromising uh, the immediate surroundings or analysis might be. And I mean, uh, Christians in the Middle East have um, plenty of experience of the kind of geopolitics, for example, that would uh, very easily lead you to lose hope. And yet they're saying no. Um, and and it, it, this is not about othering. It's not about uh, rejecting uh, people who, who have a different faith. It's about living your own faith fully mm. and recognizing the other uh, and seeing the other through the eyes of of God. And it's a very, very, it's a very celebratory, a very positive, a very hopeful document. <clears throat> and I wonder, mm. you know, this seems to me to be a sign of a gift. Mm. There is a gift to be had and to be received by us uh, mm. uh, in the West from our brothers and sisters in the Middle East that we often overlook. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I've been really helped and inspired by some of the, the figures and some of the texts that come from that background. And in Syria and in Lebanon, in the, what should we say, 50s, 60s, 70s maybe, there were quite a number of Christians, Orthodox Christians from the Greek Orthodox tradition who were thinking very positively and very imaginatively about a diverse and interactive future for the faiths. Um, Metropolitan Georges Chodra in Lebanon is one example, and Patriarch Ignatius V in Antioch drew around him a number of very creative theologians who were looking at new ways of living, living the Christian life, including living the monastic life in ways that were open to a wider society. And in spite of the horrors of the Syrian civil war, that's not entirely dead, I think. There are as you say, there are a good many Christians there who would want to say, we mustn't let ourselves be trapped in the zero-sum game of political accounts, of different identities here. We must somehow find ways of looking at the world we share and looking at it with hope. So there's been quite a lot of thought about this. And again, looking at, at Christians in Egypt, again, the revival of monastic life in Egypt over the last half century, the, um, the opening up in some ways of the world of the Coptic church to new influences, spiritual and theological. Yes, there have been elements of that that have been reactive and defensive. There have also been elements that have been very creative, and very welcoming. So plenty of 
a life there. We're not just looking at museum specimens when we're looking at the Middle Eastern churches. And I think that's important. They're not just picturesque survivals. These are people who are thinking and praying about a Christian future. And we ought to be listening to them and engaging with them. Rowan, that seems like a good note to finish on. Um, your scholarship, as ever, astounds, but always um, irrigated with with deep faith and godly insight. I'm so grateful, and, and I know our listeners will be. Thank you very, very much for uh, joining us today and sharing some insights into your Middle East. Thank you, Rowan. Great privilege, Tim. Thank you so much.